If you're a basketball fan, you know that Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, Kevin Garnett, and a couple other significant men were dominant basketball players, and in one case still is, who were drafted right out of high school, which is astonishing to me. That means that when they were in high school, they were playing at a world-class level. So you've got to pity the poor freshmen trying to make that team. And it's astonishing for us to see these stories, and it always inspires us. And when you're a young man especially, and you see somebody like that who goes right out of high school straight to a professional level, you think, that's going to be me. We're fascinated by people like this. Immediate, instant success. Even people, if we're going to use a more sophisticated example, like Mozart, who was writing symphonies and, and playing these incredible pieces at, at, at his childhood. Or even somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, who was in college, dropped out of college, and is now one of the richest men in the world. That's every college student's dream, isn't it? I'm not even going to finish. I'm going to be a billionaire by the time I get out of here. And that's what we like. We are fascinated by that, by the immediate success, by the young pop star who's 15 and can sing and can dance and do the whole number. And this affects the way that we live our Christian lives, too. Especially tonight, we're going to apply this to ministry. In the church of Jesus Christ, we love stories like that. We can still be inspired by them. There's nothing wrong with the th examples I just gave. But we recognize in the church the value of laboring in obscurity before public success. And we also recognize that public success might be something that never comes. And it's something that we are willing to leave in the hands of the Lord. As the word says in the Psalms, it is the Lord who lifts up and puts down. And it's not our responsibility to elevate ourselves, but to be faithful. And this calls for patience. It's difficult to do good work for the Lord that seems unappreciated. Especially as you see the Kevin Garnetts and Kobe Bryants of the Christian world who seem to come out of nowhere and take the world by storm and their preaching is loved by everybody and their podcasts have a billion subscribers and everybody's listening to them. It can be frustrating when you see somebody come onto the stage who's doing a lot of good and people start to say things like, nobody's been doing this until now. And meanwhile, you have and people you know have, but because they're not famous and they're not known, you're not recognized for it. And that can be frustrating. But through the story of Joseph, we are going to see the value of obscurity and the importance of service for its own sake, rather than for accolades and for recognition. And we're going to ask ourselves this question, are you willing to labor in obscurity for the Lord, seen by nobody but your heavenly Father your whole life, with no promise of ever rising to the top? Because sometimes we can trick ourselves. Oh, I'm fine with, with being unknown now. But eventually, you know, what goes around comes around, and then I'll be famous too, or I'll be known, or I'll finally be recognized for the contributions that I've made. But what if that never comes? Are you still willing to keep going? Let's look at the story of Joseph here. We're going to read chapter 40, verses 1 through 4 to begin. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. 
The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. Okay, so we see the beginning of verse 1. Some time after this. Genesis does this quite often, where it gives us indefinite time stamps. Some time after this. But we can pin down where we are in the story by the surrounding context. We know from chapter 37, verse 2, that Joseph was 17 years old when he was enslaved. That's chapter 37, verse 2. We know from chapter 41, verse 46, that when Pharaoh raises Joseph up to be his right-hand man, Joseph will be 30 years old. That's chapter 41, verse 46. And we see at the first verse of chapter 41 that this story we're going to read tonight takes place two years before that. So if we work backwards, if he's 30 when he meets with Pharaoh, two years before that, he would have been 28 years old, which means it has been 11 years since Joseph was taken from his family. We do not know the split of how long was spent in Potiphar's house and how long was spent in the prison, but we know that it's been 11 years total and it's going to be 13 years before he gets out of that prison, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Now remember, Joseph has been raised up to be the administrator of this prison. He was the chief steward for Potiphar's house, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and sent to the prison. And he was such a good worker there, he became the overseer, in effect, of the prison. And because he is at such a position, he is given the task of attending two very important officials from the king's court. You see there that it says he attended them. We've got these two men here. The cupbearer, who would have overseen not just the cup of the king. We need to understand what this is. This is not just the one that brought the king his cup. He would have overseen the entire process from the planting of the vineyards to the fermentation and the preparation of the wine to the selection for the meal, all the way bringing it to the king. The baker, similarly, would have overseen the fields, the planting of the grain, the selection of the, just the right ingredients, and the pastries that were made. I found it interesting as I was reading about this that pastries and, and baked goods were a staple of the Egyptian diet. That we have descriptions of dozens of different kinds of baked goods and pastries that the Egyptians would eat. So it's, it seems kind of odd that the baker would be such an important position, but for them and in the diet that they ate, it was important. And you can see also that these men had a responsibility, not just to make sure that the king's table was well laid, but to protect the king's life as well. In many instances, the cupbearer's job was to taste the wine before the king did as a preventative against poison. So the cupbearer of the king, and likewise the baker, you can see the similarities, would have been very well trusted and respected members of the king's court. That's why they're called officials here, the same word that was used to describe Potiphar in the previous chapter. Nehemiah would be the cupbearer to the king of Persia. And you can see how much responsibility was given into Nehemiah's hand. He wasn't just a waiter. It was a significant position. So they're sent to prison. Remember, this was called the round house. This was the political prison for the prisoners that the king specifically didn't like. But because they are well-off, because they're well-known, because they're powerful men. Even in prison, they're given an attendant. And they're given an attendant of such standing as Joseph to look after them. Because it says they had sinned, is the actual Hebrew there. They had sinned against Pharaoh, committed an offense, the ESV translates it. I'm inclined to think that there was some kind of plot against the king's life that involved poison somehow. 
because that is what these two men would have been responsible for, for the food and the drink. They were responsible to make sure that the king was not poisoned. Now, perhaps somehow it had gotten through. Maybe somebody had died. Maybe they had just been caught. And they weren't sure if it was in the wine or the bread. So we're going to throw them both into prison and we'll figure it out later. That seems to be what happened in this story. And they were thrown into prison. And it says the captain of the guard, twice in verses 3 and 4, put Joseph at their side. And this is probably, I should mention here, probably Potiphar. Because Potiphar was the captain of the king's guard. It could be a different one, I suppose. But the only other one we know about in this story is Potiphar himself. Which might lend a little more credence to what we said last time, which is perhaps Potiphar did not have Joseph executed because of his wife's accusations, because Potiphar knew his wife and kind of understood what was going on. And so rather than allow himself to be shamed by keeping Joseph around, and he's certainly not going to put him to death, he's going to send him to prison and, and give him these sorts of cushy jobs that still have some honor attached to them. Maybe. This is not the warden from before, but this is the captain of the guard. So we see that Joseph in this state has gained respect for himself. He has a tendency that wherever he is, he rises to the top. Whatever situation he's in, whether that's in his father's house, in slavery, in prison, he's able to work his way to the top and make the best of it. And we talked about that last time and the importance of it, of working for the Lord and not for men. But we need to not sugarcoat this too much. His situation is still subservient. He's still a slave. He's still away from home, has been for more than a decade. He spent, you could say, the best years of his life serving these Egyptians. We talked about the prejudice that was against Hebrews at this time. He's endured that. He's 28 years old, still not married, still no children, no likelihood of that ever happening. And now he's been made not just the overseer of the prison, but he's also got to wait on these two guys. To attend them is a term of servanthood. He's going to be their, their waiter, more or less, while they're there. So Joseph is a great man, he's a capable man, he's a smart man, he's a righteous man. But he's now serving and using all of those God-given talents and gifts in obscurity, in prison. Nobody knows about it except the man that put him there and other prisoners. And we can go through seasons like this, and sometimes they're long and sometimes they're lifelong. But it does seem from Scripture that every great man of God needs to go through a time of service in obscurity. They have the talent. They have the potential to do well. They have the gifts from the Lord. They rise to the top at whatever they do, but no recognition comes their way. You can consider Abraham, of course. 100 years without the promised son. You can consider Moses. Moses is a great example of this. Because Moses went to his people, the Hebrews, because it says he assumed they knew he was to be their deliverer. And he starts going around, sticking up for him. He kills the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. And he goes back and he's trying to say, hey, brothers, what are we fighting for? We should be fighting the Egyptians, not one another. And they rejected that from him, remember? So we've got to get the picture that Moses was not, you know, the, oh, no, I didn't realize I I was a Hebrew all this time. That's how all the movies put it. Moses was, was planning a slave rebellion. Moses was, this is my ticket to power. Because I'm, I'm a Hebrew. I'm kind of the, the token slave in the king's court. So how am I going to ri- rise up? I'm going to get all these Hebrews with me. But they rejected that. And so he spends 40 years in the wilderness tending sheep. He gets married. He has some children. Life is going well. 
But the next time God says it's time to go, Moses had lost all that cockiness. I can't do it. He was ready for the Lord to use him. He needed those 40 years tending sheep. Speaking of tending sheep, what about David? David was the youngest son of a lot of sons. He was tending sheep. There was no chance of inheritance for him. There was no chance of being an elder in the city like his father. But he goes out into the wilderness with the sheep and he spends that time getting to know God, learning his word, writing songs of praise, praying to him with no end in sight. David never thought, I better know God now so that later when I'm king, it'll work out for me. That's why the Lord loved him so much because he knew that David had no agenda and didn't want anything from God. That time was very important for him. And even after that, he spends years being chased by the king that he had sworn to serve. What about Paul, the apostle? Paul was met on the road to Damascus. He was baptized. He was filled with the Spirit. And he starts preaching in Damascus, and they didn't want him there. And he ended up spending a long time in obscurity. He spent a couple years in the wilderness, sort of the first monk you could almost call Paul, living there, receiving from the Lord, getting his doctrine worked out. And then he says, all right, I'm ready. He goes back to Jerusalem. They don't want him in Jerusalem either. So he goes up to his hometown in Tarsus, and he makes tents for between... 14 and 15 years before Barnabas showed up and says, hey, we need you down in Antioch. Laboring in obscurity. This is the Apostle Paul fixing your tent, filled with the Holy Spirit, knowing the doctrines of justification through faith, bold as a lion, but he's obscure and nobody knows anything about him. And the ones who do are afraid of him. You can even consider Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, spent 30 years building chairs and tables and fixing leaky roofs. Well, we all know that Jesus did all kinds of miracles as a child. No, we don't. When they found out that Jesus was preaching, nobody could figure it out. He's the carpenter's son. You seriously, you're, gonna, you're, gonna, you're a disciple of that guy? Don't you know what his mom, it was kind of an iffy kind of birth, what really came from that? But when the Holy Spirit came upon him at, at the age 30, he was ready to go. The Lord likes to send his people into obscurity to prepare them to be used. And we've got to accept the fact that quiet obedience is nothing to be ashamed of. If you are serving the Lord faithfully, you're reading your Bible, you're praying, you're fasting, you're attending church, you're serving in the church, you're evangelizing when you can, but nobody knows or cares, that's all right. I have to say this to myself as a pastor and for those of you that desire to serve the Lord in ministry. You, you might not get any following. You might not get any church of any size. You might not get any big publishing deals. You might not have thousands of people following you on, on Instagram or whatever it is. That's okay. That's not how we measure success in God's church. God chooses to raise people up and bring them down and it has nothing to do with us. In fact, quiet obedience can be something to aim for, not just to accept, but to aim for. Jesus said this. You know this passage, but let's read it afresh with this knowledge in our mind. Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Let me just read that again before we finish it. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is something that is uniquely Christian. The belief that doing things to be seen by people is lesser than doing things that only God sees. This really tests our belief in the supernatural, doesn't it? But if nobody sees, what's the point? Nobody sees me doing it, what's the point? God has not required us to be great. In Jeremiah 45.5, he told his scribe Baruch, he said, Baruch, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Baruch thought, I'm Jeremiah's scribe. I'm writing down the Bible, man. Something's going to happen. God obviously uses Jeremiah, and I'm right there. I'm going to be Joshua. He's going to be Moses. This is going to be amazing. And he says, Baruch, don't seek great things for yourself. In his case, the Lord is going to destroy this city, and we're going to end up far from here. We're going to be exiled. The Lord has not required us to be great, but 1 Corinthians 4.2 says it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. That's what the Lord requires of us. Not greatness, but faithfulness. To keep going. And it can be difficult to do well when no one sees and no one cares, can't it? Why do we need to clean out that drawer? No one's going to be looking at it anyway. Why should I put all this effort into studying for Sunday morning? Because it's only going to be the same 25 people and they already know what I'm going to say. What's the point of trying to do well? I've known pastors that get into that rut. They think it's, nothing's going to change, so why should I work hard? But we're not working for men. We're working for the Lord himself. And isn't that all the motivation we need? If the Lord sees the things you do in obscurity, isn't that enough motivation to keep going? And there's a whole other thing I could get into here of how the Lord dignifies the mundane by his attention. The things that we see as unimportant and part of just everyday life, boring things that we do, God sanctifies those things when you do them for him. And that makes your life wonderful, even if nobody else would call it that. And if you've ever met somebody that takes the boring, quote-unquote, aspects of life and ministry seriously and does them spiritually, you never forget a person like that. The one who says, I love vacuuming this sanctuary so much. I love setting up these chairs with all my heart because I know I'm doing it for Jesus and somebody's got to do it. And somebody who can take something like that and can turn it in their mind to the right direction and say, I, I like cleaning this bathroom. Because I don't want somebody to come in here and see that it's messy. And then now they start thinking, this is gross. I don't want to be here. This is kind of uncomfortable. And they might walk into the sanctuary and they're, they're not going to want to receive what the Lord has said because they're already in a, in a bad frame of mind. And now we can get all spiritual about that and say, well, they, they should listen anyway because it's God's word. Like, yeah, but that person's job is just as important as what the pastor is doing because it's all contributing to the Lord speaking to that person. And that's what we've all got to be able to do is see the mundane, small things that we do are worthwhile, even and especially if nobody sees them. Now, we know how Joseph's story is going to end. Joseph is going to end as second in command of Egypt, but he doesn't know that yet. And he's still doing the best he can. He's not pouting. He's not giving up. He's doing well. 
And we can learn from that example. Well, let's see what happens now. Verse 5 through 8. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison. Each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. This is the second story about dreams that we have in the life of Joseph. There will be a third, of course, that will concern Pharaoh. And I've pointed out a few times the dreams in Joseph's stories come in pairs. He had the dream of the sheaves of wheat bowing down and the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now we have the butler and the baker. Later, Pharaoh's going to have the dreams of the cornstalks and the cattle. I don't know that there's any significance to that other than it's just doubling down that Joseph was not just a fluke figuring these things out, but God was speaking. And he sees that they are troubled. You ever have a dream and you wake up troubled? And he asks what's going on, right? He's, he's taking care of them. He's not just bringing them their breakfast. He's asking how they're doing. And they said, we've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. Egyptian culture placed a high value on signs and omens and dreams and magical signs. They believed that significant dreams were prophetic. There were magicians who spent their whole lives devoted to interpreting and understanding dreams. And so as well-to-do men in the court of Pharaoh, they would have had access to men like that just about any time they wanted. They could call up, what's his name? And he can come and tell me what my dream meant. We've even found in the literature of Egypt interpretation guides that the magicians would use. Written in ancient Egyptian script, they would open it up and they would see what happened and that would tell you what, what happened in your dream. And it's not so different from what we have today, is it? There are so many theories that exist on where dreams come from, what they mean, how to interpret them. I'm going to give four examples real quick that I don't think are, are certainly working with the whole truth here from one degree or another. First of all, you've got the astrologers, right? Those who are involved in the occult. They believe that there's some cosmic spiritual significance that we're going to search it out. There's going to be magic involved. We're going to burn incense and we're going to find out what it means. The position of the stars will help coordinate and tell us what your dream means. You've got the psychologists who believe in the, the unconscious that manifests itself in your dreams. You have men like Carl Jung who believe that all of your unresolved issues would manifest themselves in your dreams. You had Sigmund Freud who believed the similar thing but that it was all related to sex for some reason. But psychologists, people will go to their psychologist, their therapist to tell them what their dreams meant. You've got secularists who attach no significance to their dreams. If you have a dream, it doesn't mean anything. Forget it and move on. And then you've got some Christians, some, not all, who identify every dream and every detail within that dream as important and prophetic. I know a friend of mine who was at a I don't know, know if you can call it Christian, but it, it called itself Christian. And they, they offered classes in prophetic dreaming. They would teach you how to dream prophetically. And they would keep dream journals and all the rest. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But then you were to take every dream and figure out what God was revealing to you. Now, I've had some weird dreams before. And 
I know that they did not have prophetic significance. But there are those that, that take passages like this one and, and take it to, uh, I would say, an unwise extreme. Now, there is a, a grain of truth in each of those four things that I just went through. Number one, we do believe in angels and demons as Christians. We believe that there can be spiritual and supernatural, I guess for lack of a better term, communication going on. We do not believe that it is always good. Paul tells us that we need to watch out even for angels that appear and want to tell us things if they contradict the, the gospel. There may be some value to the idea that if you're dealing with something emotionally or internally, it's going to manifest itself in your dreams. I don't see any biblical reason why that cannot be true, as the psychologist would say. There are some times, as the secularists say, where your dreams mean nothing. You wake up and you go, that was weird, and you tell your friends and you laugh and you move on. And we certainly do believe that God can use dreams for his purposes. Just because some Christians, kind of like we talked about on Sunday, can run wild with something, doesn't mean that we cannot land at the biblical truth of what it says about dreams. And we've talked about this a few weeks ago, so I don't want to belabor the point, but I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 2, another man who had a lot of dream stories in his life. And what he said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is instructive for us when it comes to this theology of, of dreams. He said to Daniel, or the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Do you remember this story? The king had a dream. He knew it meant something, but he was not about to put it in front of all these hucksters that were going to make something up. So he says, I'm not going to give you the chance to come up with a good interpretation. You've got to tell me what the dream was, and then you can tell me what it means. Nebuchadnezzar was a harsh guy, but in a, in a humorous kind of way, in my opinion. Said, no, no, you tell me what it, what it was first. I thought you spoke to the gods. I thought you had communion with a spirit that could tell you. Well, tell me what my dream was. So this is what he asked Daniel. And Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. This is a good lesson. No wise men, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show to the king the mystery. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. Here's a significant point for all of us. But as for me... This mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. That's very important. At the end, he says, this is not me. I, I'm not some amazing dream interpreter. I'm not the dream whisperer to come and talk to you, king. But I know God and God knows everything. And if God gave you this dream, he wants you to understand it. Therefore, God is going to let you know through me. And this is what Joseph says in verse 8, isn't it? Do not interpretations belong to God? As they both say, it is the Lord who understands dreams and gives interpretation. So for this reason, we ought not to rush to the astrologers or the psychologists or rush to dismiss a dream that seems significant because it might be significant. But we don't want to look to outside help. As we said in a study not too long ago, as Elijah said to the king, is it because there's no God in Israel 
that you're going to the Lord of the flies to ask his opinion? Is it because you don't have a God who reveals mysteries that you're going to go and check your astrology chart, which is witchcraft, the Bible says? Might just be funny, might be cute, but I'm telling you, the Bible makes specific reference to looking to the stars for guidance for your life, not to do it. Running to the psychologists and the psychiatrists who might believe in God, but they'll believe in him in an abstract, collective, weird, almost pantheistic kind of way. And they're going to break down your issues rather than the fact that God might be revealing something to you. We learned in Joel 2.28 that dreams are to increase in the church age. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your young men shall dream dreams, and your old men shall have visions. So we should not discount when we have a significant dream. And in my experience, you usually can tell. You know, you have a weird dream, and you wake up and you go, that was weird. You have something from the Lord, you can tell the difference, I have found. So what do we do? You take them to the Lord. You take them to godly men and women who know the Lord. And don't rush to identify the meaning. Sometimes you're like, I'm not leaving this room until I know what this means. Sometimes God wants you to wait. Remember it said before, when Jacob heard Joseph's dreams, he pondered them in his heart. But he didn't rush to figure out what they meant. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says to test all things. So test them. We don't want to become obsessed with dreams and visions. Certainly not above God's word. Jeremiah 23.28 says, Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. So listen, we're open to special dreams. Jesus' natural father, Joseph, had dreams where the angels told him to get up and go. Zechariah says, in the night I had visions. But we weigh them by the word, always. This dream seems to be indicating that Jesus is not the Son of God. Then Paul says, then that angel is going to hell that gave you that dream. But you know what I do love about Joseph in this? I might need to come back to this at some point. His willingness to put God on the line. Don't you love that? We've had dreams, and we don't have anyone to interpret them. He says, my God can interpret dreams. Why don't you ask me? Are we brave enough to put God on the, on the line? Are you afraid when somebody is speaking of the troubles they're going through? Are you afraid to bring the gospel into it? Don't be afraid. Say, my God died for things just like that, and he's ready to forgive you. Are you afraid to pray for healing? I hope not. You just say it just like Joseph did. He said, dreams belong to God. You say, my God heals the sick. Let me pray for you. Why don't we ask? Oh, because we don't want to disappoint them. We don't want to make God look bad. That is not faith, Christian. That is fear. And you've not been given a spirit of fear. And you don't need to embarrass yourself, but you can say, I believe in a God who heals the sick. I've seen him heal the sick in my life. I've heard testimonies. Can I pray for you? Are you bold to do that? Are you too afraid to give counsel to somebody who needs it because you say, I'm not qualified for that? You know, the New Testament tells us that in the church, we are to admonish one another. That because the Holy Spirit is within you, you are qualified to speak into someone's life. And I'll tell you, I, I've been in ministry for a while and I've gotten some great advice and I've read some great books, but counseling for me always boils down to what does the word say? And what doesn't line up with the word? And can we make it line up? Well, that's not going to fix them in the moment. Well, it might be what they need to hear. My father always says, when you're dealing with a really messy situation, he says, don't try to fix it. Just say, this is a mess, but this part is sin. Let's work on that. 
Start there. Don't be afraid to put your God on the line. The Lord loves it when his people do that. The Lord loves it when his people say, pour extra water on the altar and wait for God to call down fire from heaven. Say, well, I, I can't interpret dreams. Well, no, you can't. But you ask the Lord to help you. I can't tell anybody. Oh, of course you can't, but God can. I don't know how to fix this. No, you don't, but God might. And he might give you just what is needed in that moment. Is, is God not able to help us? Of course he is. Whatever the situation is, rely on God and trust that he'll act for his glory and for your good. God's not going to leave you hanging, I promise. So this is just an example. It is an important little side trail for us to take there about dreams and things like that. And so many Christians I have found are shockingly comfortable with astrology and magic and, and things that are, are not just something you see on TV, but you know, this spell, this mantra is actually kind of helpful. No, no, no. Stay away from that stuff. You just stick to the Lord. He'll help you out. But the point of that whole rabbit trail is Joseph is being faithful in obscurity. He's not phoning it in. He's taking the time to do it well, which is what we all should do. So let's see what their dreams were. Verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. There's a, there's a sequence of three that repeatedly happens in this dream. Do you see it? There were three branches. It budded, it blossomed, and it ripened. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes, one, pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, two, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Another one of those things that is probably just a poetic rhetorical device, but... It's just interesting to note that. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit." It's interesting that he uses the word pit there, isn't it? It's the same word, bore, that was used previously of the cistern that his brothers threw him into. So he's gone from one pit to another. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for the Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. So these dreams are very similar in many ways, although they take a very different turn at the end, revealing their future. The cupbearer dreamt of the three vines and was then restored to his place. And Joseph interprets it. He says, you're going to get your job back. And he, he says, listen, when you go back to Pharaoh, tell him about me. Maybe he'll give me a pardon. And when the baker realizes that, oh, that was good. That was a good thing. Maybe, maybe mine will be good too. So he opens up. We, we can see later on that the, the cupbearer was the one who was innocent and the baker was the one who was guilty. So the cupbearer is more than willing to share his dream. The baker's like, I'm not, I'm not going to share too much because I don't know what, what's going to come out here. The three baskets, the birds eating all of the food. Birds are a significant animal symbolically in the Bible, and it's used different ways. You know, it can be used positively. You'll mount up with wings like eagles, so to speak. But 
You know, Abraham had to wave away the birds of prey from coming on the sacrifice. Jesus tells the story of the birds that would take away the seed of the word of God on the path. Just another little biblical note for you to to pay attention to and, and see if there's anything to that. But Joseph gives both the interpretation that God had given him. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't try to make them both happy. And you can imagine that would have been a temptation. And he tells them both, and I love the way the ESV translates it because it pulls it out. He told them both, the Pharaoh is going to lift up your head. Now that can mean as in your head is bowed down and he lifts up your head, you're going to be restored. But he says, your head's going to be lifted up as in your head is going to be taken from you. And by the way, when he says he will hang you on a tree, what probably is referred to there is he is going to impale you on a stake. And he would hang there to be eaten by the birds. The hanging by the neck was not a way that executions were done at this point of time. Nor was crucifixion, which is another way of hanging from a tree. That's New Testament. That's Roman. So he was probably talking about being impaled on a stake and then left out for all to see as the birds eat him. When you are laboring in obscurity, it is very tempting to try to make impressive people happy so that they can elevate you out of your position. Somebody rich or famous comes into the church. Keep them happy because, you know, they got a lot of money. And if we can keep them happy here, then maybe we'll be able to do better and we'll be able to expand what's going on, which is one reason why I make it a point not to know who gives what here at the church. There's no biblical mandate for me to do that, but it's wise wisdom that I've been given, and I think it's good. So that way, when someone comes up to me, and they ever want to say, don't you know what I give to this church? My answer will be, no, actually I don't. I don't think there's anything wrong with knowing, but it's just, it's one precaution that we've taken here at the church to make sure that we don't do this, that we don't make the rich person happy. We don't make the politician happy or the famous person happy. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I don't care who walks through that door. James has told us that we treat everybody equally. I don't care if it is the president of the United States who walks in that door. He is not to be treated any better or differently than anybody else here. So if the Lord does cause us to grow and cause us to be elevated, our head gets lifted up, and maybe people who are known and are significant start to come through, they're not to be given any special or extra attention because we are not regarders of persons in God's church. But when you're in the pit and you feel like you're doing all this great work but nobody cares, here comes the butler and the baker, let's make them happy so that they'll go back to Pharaoh and they'll get me out of here. That's tempting. Jeremiah rebuked the prophets in his day for doing this. This is from the same chapter we read before. I'll read verse 16 and then 21 and 22 because it was just too long to read all of it. But Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. Verse 21, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. So the Lord is saying, I didn't tell you to say that. I don't care what your title is. I don't care what you've done in the past. I didn't tell you to say that. That came from your own mind, which should put paid to the idea making its way through Christian academia right now that the prophets didn't reveal anything from the Lord, but they they were putting their own thoughts down on paper. 
And they came up with these things. And John articulated and came up with the book of Revelation. The Lord rebukes them for this. If it's out of your own mind and not from me, then you're in serious trouble, my friend. Don't listen to the prophets who prophesy with vain hopes. This is what Joseph was tempted to do here. And he passed the test, as he always does. He could have told him, uh, you're going to be released too. And when you see Pharaoh, would you tell him? He's like, okay, now i got two guys. He's probably not going to last, but at least i got two that are going to say good things about me. You can do that in the church. We can soften this doctrinal position so that they won't leave. I don't have to preach that. Yeah, they, they really want to get into this ministry that I don't think is a, is a great idea, but let's keep them happy. Let's participate. It's so easy to try to make the church a nice cultural institution. We're part of the community. It's a good place for people to come. It's safe for the kids. And we're maintaining our, our culture, whatever your culture is. Right wing, left wing, whatever it is. The culture is maintained by the church. It cannot be just that. If that happens along the way, I suppose it's fine. But that's not our goal. Our goal is to say what the Lord has said, and that will always be countercultural. That will always go against the grain of sinful men and women. And the Lord loves to give us opportunities to speak and to give us favor with men. And we shouldn't be afraid of that, but we also shouldn't value it too highly. We serve in accordance with the Lord and His Word. And hear me now, this means not everyone is going to like us. Just know that now, so that when they stop liking you later, you don't go, have I done something wrong? I mean, maybe. But if you've just been doing the same thing you've always done, and now people get mad at you, think of how fast the culture is, has revolved over the last several decades. It's gone from here to here to here to here. It's like we're flipping through the pages of a book. And if the church is going to try to keep up with that, First of all, we're going to look really lame because we're never in front. We're always at the back, like too late, first of all. But second of all, the world changes, and is is the Bible supposed to change with it? Absolutely not. We stick with what the Lord has to say. And today, this group will love you because you're saying the same things they are. But then they're going to change, and they're going to want you to change with them. Come on, buddy, we're teammates. You say, I'm not on your team. I'm on the Lord's team. Like the angel of the Lord who appeared to Joshua. Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. That's the kind of obscurity you ought to treasure in your ministry. Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. For that's what they said to the false prophets. A real prophet is not loved by most people. We don't even, even the prophets in the church that we recognize now, and we love their memory and we sing their praise, we look back and the church did not like them at the time. When a prophet blows through the church, he's disruptive because he calls the church out. And people don't like being called out. They want to keep things the way they are. They're focused on what they call the big picture, but it's not God's big picture. Martin Luther and the reformers were accused of causing discord when they were trying to fight the Ottoman Turks. Don't you know that Islam is advancing against the church and Christian Europe? We've got to stop them. The Lord says, I don't care about that as much as I do the corruption at the heart of my church. Same thing, William Wilberforce was accused when he was fighting for slavery to be abolished in in England. He was accused of causing division when they're trying to fight this war against France. The church is never recognized in its day. That's what Jesus said, right? A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. So we don't preach nice to people to get out of obscurity. We preach the word and we leave the rest of it to the Lord, which is what Joseph did to his credit. And I'll see what happened at the end of verse 20 here. 
On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. And the tragedy of verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Well, the interpretations that Joseph gave come true. On Pharaoh's birthday, the heads were lifted up, all right. <laughs> one of them was good, one of them was not. And you'd think that this is the end. Things are finally looking up. We're coming to the end of the story. But it was not to be. The chief cupbearer leaves. You can picture Joseph saying, don't forget to tell, I could never forget you, Joseph. But he did. He did. He forgot. He got back among his fancy friends, his great job, surrounded by money and luxury again. And what does he care about the Hebrew slave in prison? You can imagine how Joseph would have begun the next few days with anticipation and with hope. Probably would have prepared himself, maybe cut his hair to be ready to face Pharaoh. And then it doesn't come. It doesn't come. Is there any way I can get a message to the cupbearer? Well, I'll try, but I don't know if he'll say anything. Oh, no, I couldn't find him. Until eventually he sinks back into despair, and one of those days he realizes he forgot about me. He's not coming. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. There are few things more heartbreaking than being used mightily of the Lord to help people only to have them forget you and leave you behind. When you've taken the time to go through difficult counseling situations with people, when you've had those weeping embraces with somebody, when you've been giving them instruction over a long period of time, showing them how to do this, showing them what's wrong, showing them what's right, being patient in your kindness with them, that can all be forgotten. People will reject you, forget you, ignore you, abandon you. They'll go on to greater things while you remain back here and nobody remembers you. Consider Jesus and the betrayal of Judas, his dear friend, his disciple, Luke twenty two forty eight. Jesus said, Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss, Judas? There's a man named Demas who is a companion of Paul. We see him at the end of several letters. And in two of them, he says, I've sent Demas here. Demas is here helping me. And then in 2 Timothy 4.10, he writes to Timothy, Demas, in love with this present world, has abandoned me. Can you imagine doing ministry with the Apostle Paul and then giving up when he goes to prison? This is where bitterness can set in. I know my worth, and I'm not getting it here. The love that I've shown to you is not worth ignoring, so I'm not going to do this again. The preaching that I've been giving to you people, you never appreciated it, and I'm moving on. I'm getting out of here. Sitting there wondering when your turn is going to come. When am I going to get the applause? When am I going to have my issues dealt with? God uses you to help all sorts of people. Meanwhile, you're still struggling with the same thing. Where's my accolades? That attitude is a ministry killer. You ever known somebody that was bitter in the ministry? I know men like this. Gifted, talented, righteous, but they've let bitterness set in because they feel like they have not been given what he or she have been given along the way. We go to these pastors' meetings and some of them are still struggling with this. I've been doing this for 25 years or whatever and we're still right where we started. 
I've tried everything and I'm done trying. But I don't know what to do. I can't leave because I don't have any other skills and I'm getting older. What am I supposed to do? So I better just finish out this ministry thing and hope that I've got something to help me retire someday. That's poison to a church. It's poison to a ministry. We've got to learn to stamp that attitude out of ourselves and find a different motivation than success. Paul had this. Think, oh, Paul was such a successful... Well, he kind of. He also got beat up everywhere he went. He got imprisoned. He got slandered. He would spend months and months and even years, in some cases, at a church, leave, and then somebody else would come behind him and undo everything he did and tell them you should never trust Paul. But you know what Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13? It says, not that I speak of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Whatever situation. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's the secret, Paul? I can do all things through him who strengthened me. We love that verse, and I believe it can be applied very broadly. But in this case, he's talking about enduring deprivation. I've learned I learned this verse in the old King James back in the day. In whatsoever state I am in, therewith to be content. This is where you have to examine your motivations. Why are you working in the first place? Why are you serving the Lord? Why are you following Jesus? Why are you trying to lead your family well? Why are you preaching? Sometimes we act like my least favorite kind of athlete. The sports hero who is playing on a great team but is frustrated because he's not getting paid as much as the star of the team. So he's willing to go to a different team and be the best there and be mediocre or even bad as long as he's top dog, rather than play a role on a championship team. I don't understand that. You know, this team almost won the championship, but he's leaving because they're going to pay him $50 million. And to which I say, after a certain point, doesn't the money kind of become less of an issue? <laughs> What's 45 and $50 million, like, are you... Is there something that you really, really want that that $5 million is going to help you get? But it's a pride thing. I understand that. I'd rather be the star of a poor team than a contributor to a championship team. That attitude cannot come into the church. I'd rather be king here than part of something big that God is doing. And some people join the church and the ministry to be known. And the second they find out they can get it somewhere else, they leave. This is why I believe you see a lot of these Christian so-called celebrities leaving the faith because they were never in it for Jesus in the first place. Or if they were, it was not sufficient strength and they allowed it to erode over time. And they realized, wait a minute, I don't have to hold to all of these unpopular Christian doctrines and positions to be liked and known and loved and celebrated and I can still do my music and do the shows. Bye. You mean I don't have to preach the Bible? I can just say whatever I want and be a motivational speaker and make more money and have more people like me and sell more books? Bye. And we say it happened so suddenly, but no, it didn't though. It slowly worked and eroded, which is why we ought to be careful of who we value in God's church. What are our motivations as Christians? Everything we do is for one of two reasons. Number one, the love of God. I'm doing it because it's right and because I love Jesus. And after all that Jesus has done for me, I can do a great job for him in the short life that I have. And also number two, the love of our neighbor. Love the person that you're serving and ministering. Don't look at people as an object. 
to achieve your goals. I did youth ministry and I did worship ministry for a very long time. And I had to have this conversation with many people. I'd say, this worship team is not your creative outlet to let your voice be heard. This, this is for the church of God to come together and be able to sing with one voice to the praise of Jesus Christ. And if you feel like this is interfering with your goal, then you need to step down and leave. Same thing in the youth ministry. You want to be a pastor, you want to be a theologian, whatever. But this youth group is not your stepping stone. So if you're here because you want to hone some skills and then get some ministry years under your belt and then move on to something greater, I don't need your help. Now, does that happen along the way sometimes? Yeah. Sometimes the Lord gives you the blessing of being able to use the gifts he's given to you to their fullest extent. And sometimes a a different ministry can be a stepping stone to something else, but you never want to go in with that mindset. You've got to love the people there well and do it for the Lord so that wherever you go, Your motivation doesn't change. It'll sustain you. Joseph, by the way, was being prepared for what God had for him. Joseph did not know what was coming next. You can't evaluate your life based on a season because you don't know the whole story. This is it. This is the end. It's like in Lord of the Rings where Sam says, sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? But it's like the Lord sees your whole life and is working out the long game. And even if you die in that obscurity, as we're going to talk about in a minute, you're going to be in the presence of the Lord. And often our obscurity is just what is needed to break our pride and build the skills and get us ready for what God's going to have us do. I want it now. I have to deal with this with all these guys that want to be in ministry. They call me all the time and I want to do this, but this is really frustrating and boring. I'm like, yeah, well. Welcome to the game, my friend. This is what we do. I've been studying, but you know, I, I feel like I've got everything out of the passage already. How long did you spend? 30 minutes. Get back in there and keep reading. Well, I'm not seeing anything else. Then you need to look harder. Have you been reading? Oh, I don't really like to read. Then, then I'm sorry. You're in the wrong business, my friend. You've got to get out there and you've got to study. You've got to read. You've got to prepare. I want to be a, I want to be a worship musician. Okay, practice and pray. Those are the two things you've got to do. I love to practice. I don't want to pray. I love to pray, but I don't want to practice. No, you're lazy. Get on it. God is preparing you for what he has for you. Look at your life that way. And it might be preparing you for what he's got you to do in kingdom come. Or Lord, like that life that I had you live was exactly what I needed so that you could be, as it says, ruling and reigning with Christ. Consider that. Be like Paul. Be like Joseph. Train yourself to work for the Lord's own sake. Know that wherever state you're in, I can be content. I can be a slave in Potiphar's house. I can be in the dungeon. But I'm still going to serve the Lord and serve people well. This is similar to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. He says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Why? Because we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. (laughs) I love that, that each one may receive what is due. You ever feel like, I've paid my dues, and I'm not getting what I deserve? You know, if you can have that objectively and in humility, you may be right. But there's going to come a day where God's going to make all that right. Where the Lord's like, you're right, you were mistreated there. Joseph, you did deserve better than to be in that prison. And someday we're going to stand before Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, and it's all going to be made manifest. And the Lord will reward the people for the deeds they had done in the body. 
How awesome is that? God is going to lift up each man and each woman and look them in the eye and say, I know your works. I know what you did. And it says that some will be saved as through fire, which is everything that you ever lived for is going to burn up in an instant and count for nothing. You'll be saved, but all your work won't mean a thing. But there will be some, I'm sure many of whom we have no idea what their names are, that are going to be glorious in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, many are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. As the Lord is going to say, nobody saw you, but I saw you. Nobody understood, but I understood. Nobody cared, but I cared. I saw every betrayal. I saw every time you got passed up. I saw every time you were ignored, and I'm here to reward you for it. I wish I could get into it more, but Paul uses the illustration of, of the games that they would have, the, the Olympic games, so to speak, where you'd be rewarded for how you ran and those crowns, right? Not like a king's crown, but like the laurel. You did well. Gold medal for you. If you live for the praise of men in this life only, you're going to waste your life. You're going to waste your effort. But if you live for the day, when every deed and every motivation will be brought to light, then you're going to hear your Lord Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And nothing else will ever compare to that.